A lot of these people are bought and sold by this industry, by Wall Street, by the pharmaceutical industry, by the healthcare industry, and they don't want to upset their owners. I'm sorry, excuse me, their donors. Why in the world would you want to send somebody to a primary care doctor to burn a ward off when you can send them to a specialist and charge $2,000? They lack the intestinal fortitude, (laughs) either ovaries or balls. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. An honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm Stephanie Irvin. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. Okay, so uh, this is uh, part two of our healthcare deep dive. Uh, and today we're going to talk to Nina Turner. And Nina Turner is co-chair of, of the Sanders for President right. campaign. Yeah. And we're, t- we're going to talk about their Medicare for All proposal, which would be yeah, super interesting. Yeah. You know, she's a super fascinating person with a really interesting personal background that clearly animates a lot of the work that she's mm-hmm. been doing over the last few years and in her entire career as a um, local elected leader herself. And now really trying to lead a sort of movement for better outcomes for people and doing that now as a part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. So it'll be fun to talk to her and specifically about Medicare for all and the proposal they're suggesting. Right. And, and you know, I think, um, you know, what we learned in the first episode from T.R. Reid and, you know, just our own experience is that almost anything would beat the existing system we have. So it'll be really fun to talk about something, uh, a new alternative. Totally. Hi, Nina. Can you hear me? I can. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Are you Are you in Ohio or where are no, you? No, right I'm back now? in D.C. I just got back this morning. Got it. So earlier we talked to journalist T.R. Reed, who's been um, studying healthcare systems internationally as a journalist and author. We didn't focus on any one plan specifically because, frankly, most of the plans um, anywhere else in sort of industrialized country are better than the American plan for healthcare. But we wanted to talk to you to feature Medicare for All because it feels like presenting the most sort of ambitious plan could at least help us bend the needle towards getting us out of this mess. So I'd love for you to just tell us more about um, Medicare for All and the plan that um, Senator Sanders is proposing. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. Senator Sanders has been really pushing for this. And the, the focus really is, is that you take the Medicare system that we have right now that is for people who are 65 years and older, and you broaden that out to everyone. And the senator believes, and I believe the same thing, that healthcare is a moral right. And the system as it is designed now, we pay more. We pay. We just don't see it that way. And we pay a private corporate tax for our health insurance, those of us who have it. Everybody does not have it. There are about 30 million people in this country who don't have any health care at all. And that's even with the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. And then people who do have health insurance through their jobs, a lot of them are underinsured and they pay premiums and co-pays and other fees that are really not that affordable. And on top of all of that in this country, we don't even have as good a health outcomes as some other nations do. Meanwhile, we pay more. 
you know, all the polls show that Medicare for all is vastly preferred by folks. But then it, all the polls also indicate just a incredible level of confusion among people about what they think that means. So one thing I found interesting in one of the healthcare tracking polls is that the vast majority of Americans correctly believe that their taxes would go up to fund a Medicare for all system. But about the same amount, 69%, think that they would still have to pay copays and deductibles. So to me, this feels like one of the sort of flaws in selling a universal health care plan or Medicare for all. Can you speak to that and sort of what the plan is for making sure people understand what Medicare for all really would mean? Well, you bring up a very good point, Stephanie. You know, confusion is the name of the game. And there are forces in this country, i.e. the healthcare industry itself, and a lot of those investors in that industry that really don't want to see this happen. So confusion is the name of the game. Once we have a Medicare for all type system in this country, Medicare for all as Senator Sanders envisions it. What Medicare for all does is provide comprehensive health care to every man, woman and child in this country. If you've got good insurance now, Medicare for all is better. There will be no deductibles, no co-payments. Not biting around the edges, not kind of sort of, but all the way Medicare for all, those premium and co-pays and deductibles go away. And there are studies that show very clearly that the average family would actually pay less under a Medicare for all system than what they pay now, thereby saving their family money. And the, the product, you know, this, I want people to think of it as a comprehensive coverage. It will include all of their primary care, preventative care, inpatient, outpatient services, and they won't have to pay that anymore through their job. And, and another thing, Stephanie, I want people to think about is that the system that we have now is tied to a job. And just imagine, and, and those of us, we have friends, we have family members who have lost their jobs. And once you lose your job in this country, you don't have health care. And if you can get it, it is so high through COBRA that you can't really afford it. But the Medicare for All system envisioned by Senator Sanders, universal health care envisioned by him, means all of that goes away. And your access to health care as a human being in this country will become a right. And you don't have to worry about having those co-pays and those deductibles because all of that stuff is already paid for by this. I want people to think of it as a social contract. We're putting this money in a pot and we're all reaping the benefits of it. So no one has to worry about going to the doctor and having and, and not being able to afford the care that they need. And so again, preventative care, inpatient, outpatient, dental, vision, hearing, maternity. I mean, all of those things that a industrialized nation such as the United States of America should provide. But all of that, none of the deductibles or co-pays that people are paying now, all of that stuff would go away. More comprehensive system, a universal system, and no one would have to worry. And you get to keep your saying doctors, because Stephanie, that is another, you know, misnomer in this, is that somehow the government is going to take over uh, the care of. No, you keep your saying doctor. You like Dr. Jones, you get to keep Dr. Jones. Your dentist, you get to keep your dentist. The only thing is that the money that's paying for it comes from this pot that all of us are paying into. Well, thanks so much for that explanation. And I think one thing you brought up that's important is this, are these myths around employer coverage, provided coverage. 
And I was thinking, you know, it's not just about folks who, when they lose their job, lose coverage with it. Um, but there's also got to be an impact on how dynamic our economy is, right? Because I know folks who have great health care or even just good health care through their employer. And because they don't want to lose it, even though they don't like their job that much or don't feel like they're being challenged, don't leave to seek better opportunity because they have some uh, greater health concerns for their family that keep them tied to their employer-provided care. And they're not willing to risk a lapse in care or having to pay all those massive out-of-pocket expenses to be individually insured. That's right, Stephanie. It leaves the overwhelming majority of us vulnerable. And God forbid if you lose your job. You know, if you lose your job, you don't have any health care. I mean, it's asinine if we think about it. We really just take a moment to reimagine and wrap our minds around it. How how it just does not make a whole lot of sense to have health care tied to employment, meaning those who are gainfully employed, they get you know, health care, those who are not, they don't. If the economy starts to fail, you don't get health care. It makes no sense. And, you know, one of the greatest moral leaders of our time in the history of the world, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he critiqued the health care system in this country. And he talked about, of, you know, all, of all the things that are inhumane, the inequality surrounding health care is, is one of the worst that he's seen. And I'm just paraphrasing you know, what he had to say about that. But we do have the opportunity to do this a different way. And it gives people freedom and security, you know, and, and you don't have to worry. There are no networks, no premiums, none of that stuff. You get to choose your doctor. You don't have to worry about a job. You don't have to worry about paying at the point of service. And you don't, and the point that you're raising, you don't have to worry about losing your health insurance because it is attached to, to a job. And I know many people, as you, as you do, and I'm sure everybody that's with us, you know, they, they know people, too, who have health insurance, but they still have to pay inordinate fees or also co-pays. You know, I was just talking to a good friend of mine, Stephanie, just the other night, and he has good health insurance, and he had a, a health care and had to go to the emergency room. And when he got to the emergency room, you know, they checked him out and everything. And then they said, well, to take you to the next step, you got to pay us $750. So, I mean, just think about that. You're in the emergency room, not your routine checkup with your doctor. You are in the emergency room. And they, they run all these tests on you. And then once they figure out what's going on, they say to you, okay, now to continue you got to pay $750. And if you can't pay today, we are going to charge you 10% more and we'll bill you. Think about that. And this is somebody who is solidly in the middle class. Right. And what choice do you have at that point? (laughs) That's right. Emergency room. I mean, I just really want people to wrap their minds around that emergency room. So it really is an unethical system. You know, it is a profit-driven system that really gives no care uh, to the individuals in this country. And really what Senator Sanders' vision is is to do away with that and so that no one will have to worry about, you know, where they're, where, whether or not they can afford health care, that it is a moral right in this country. So his Medicare for All Act of 2019. And then the other thing about our seniors, because Medicare as it exists right now is one of the most popular federal programs in the country. You ask most elders, the overwhelming majority, they love this program. But what it does not provide, it doesn't provide 
vision services and it doesn't provide it. If you have an elder that needs a hearing aid or something like that to continue to live a good quality life, Medicare for All as it exists right now does not contain any of that. And so what this plan will do, it will expand the coverage for our elders in this country, which is a beautiful thing. You talked about inequality. What do you think the actual impact would be if we had a Medicare for All system on wrestling with inequality in America? Oh, my God. It would change that dynamic. You know, Senator talks a lot about the disparities within the disparities. And we know that, you know, racism and bigotry, look, it exists. And it exists within uh, medical systems in this country, it's unfortunate to say. But what that will do is it will, it will give access to people who ordinarily would not have it. For example, you know, black women die at higher rates during childbirth than mm-hmm. any other group in this country by far. They it's are shocking. less likely, right, shocking less likely to be insured. And if they are insured, very underinsured. And so a Medicare for all system would take that burden away and allow black women and also other women who are poor, just women in general, but I want to lay the focus on black women because their maternal rates are higher and also our infant mortality rates in the black community higher. All of that is connected to a lack of being able to afford high quality health care. And that should not be. This is not a third world country. This is not a country that is not wealthy. We are the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. And this is really one of the many stains on this country. The fact that maternal death rates in the African-American community are still very high and higher than any other group. That would take that away. And then this, when you think about people who don't have insurance right now, You know, this would give everybody in this country the opportunity to have, not to wrestle with insurance companies. I mean, just imagine you have services, and all of us have had those moments moments where we have needed services or even prescriptions that you wait, and the pharmacist tells you, oh, your insurance company won't pay for this. All of that goes away. I mean, how is it that insurance companies get to dictate what you need and not your doctor? So those are the kinds of everyday things that would change for us in this country with a Medicare for all type system. I want people to think about it in this way. You are already paying a tax because I know a lot of people are banting about, oh, it's going to raise our tax. You're already paying a tax. It's a private tax. Right. It's called copay, deductible. Deductible (laughs) to private insurance companies. If we have Medicare for all, that goes away. So instead of paying a private tax to insurance companies, it's now public and it is less money and your quality of health care increases. You're also peace of mind. And I, I don't know if you can put a number of stuff on peace of mind. Your peace of mind increases. If anything catastrophic should happen, God forbid, to you or one of your family members. You don't have to worry. You know, another uh, young lady told a story. She is a medical doctor, and her husband, who is a teacher, he was diagnosed with a type of cancer. Now, this is a medical doctor. Her husband is a teacher, so they are solidly middle class. She thought that they were going to have to sell their home, sell their home, because her husband contracted cancer multiply that by hundreds of thousands of people in this country. The highest rate, you know, bankruptcy was also linked to, you know, not, not being before healthcare costs. 
all of that will go away, and it will go away. We'll have higher quality of care. You will pay less, and your quality of life will increase. That is that is an investment well worth it. One thing that's come up recently and always comes up um, when folks are attacking sort of big, ambitious ideas is this issue of the fact that Medicare for All would cover undocumented immigrants. So can you just explain what the what the moral and, and importantly, the economic arguments are for making sure undocumented people are included in a single-payer system? I mean, it's just a humane thing to do. And if people want to think about it from a personal standpoint, if we allow people just to, to, to be sick and, and not seek care, you know, that impacts all of us. I mean, no one should be in this country and not be able to have access to health care. And God forbid if it's something contagious. You know, so it is both a morally right thing to do, but it is a responsible thing to do in terms of making sure that people are healthy so nobody else gets sick. So if Medicare for All is so popular, why do you think there aren't more politicians, especially those on the sort of Democratic presidential stage? Why aren't there more folks raising their hands saying they support it? Because they lack the intestinal fortitude, (laughs) either ovaries or balls pick the one. <laughs> this is, you know, so it's, it's sad to think that now we know all of this and we know that we have the capacity to pay for it. We bailed out, hell, we bailed out Wall Street to the tune of $29 trillion. That's trillion with a T and did not bat an eye in this mm-hmm. country. And then you have leaders who have been elected to serve you and your interests and the interests of future generations. And, and they, they hesitate. The, the, the real reason besides the lack of intestinal fortitude, Stephanie, is also bought and sold. A lot of these people are bought and sold by this industry, by Wall Street, by the pharmaceutical industry, by the healthcare industry. And they don't want to upset their owners. I'm sorry, excuse me, their donors. They don't <laughs> their donor base. So they will sell you out just not to upset their donor base. And that that really is at the root of all of this. And then just even if we could go back in time, I want people to go back in time with us, Stephanie. Think about when Medicare for All was first being debated in this country and programs like Social Security and unemployment insurance and Medicaid. All of those programs were called socialist-type programs. They were decried by the same types of people back then as they are now. But thank goodness that you had some folks in that time, as you have right now in Senator Bernie Sanders, that continue to push. And because of that, we have Medicare for our elders in this country. Because of that, we have Medicaid for poorer people in this country. Because of that, we have unemployment insurance. You know, all of these things were said that they couldn't couldn't be done. And, you know, it just leads me to one of my favorite people in history, uh, President Nelson Mandela. He, he used to say, it always seems impossible until it is done. We can do this as a nation. This should be a number one priority in this nation to ensure that everyone in this country not has access to health care, but has high quality health care, that they don't have to haggle with insurance companies, their doctors don't have to be, you know, told what to do by insurance companies based on the cost. 
but that they will be able to treat their patients the way that they know they need to be treated to sustain your life. And we can't do any great thing in this world without having our health. And that doesn't matter if we're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or native or something in between native born or immigrant, our health is really our wealth. And businesses, Stephanie, and I, and I, I know we're putting a lot in here, but I do want to say something about what it means to businesses, you know, and especially small businesses. So instead of them having to navigate, you know, the Byzantine health insurance market, they don't have to juggle those costs. All of that burden is taken off of them, and they would just simply pay, you know, the payroll taxes for their contribution. That's it. Exactly what, what they do right now. So businesses can then begin to focus on what they're designed to do, their mission, their product hiring people. So not only is this good for the individual, this is also good for businesses in this country. How close do you think we are to realizing this future? Feels like closer than ever before, but I want to get your take on that. Yeah, I think so. I do. I feel it. I mean, everywhere I go, I've traveled all over this country, you know, in in my capacity with the senator and even before this 2020 run as the president of our revolution traveled all over this country. And people really are excited about this notion that this could happen, that it is right within our reach. And one of the things I like to always say is we could go to the moon. We can have Medicare for all. This is about having the will to do it. It is about millions of people across this country galvanizing and bringing our synergy and our energy together to demand from our elected officials that we want this to happen. This change is not going to come just because we have a visionary who really wants it and has been pushing it. And Stephanie, in all accounts, has really set the Democratic Party's agenda on this. No one can ignore this right now, that we have to have this strong conversation about Medicare for all. I think it is right in our region. Of course, you know, I believe that the only person that is running for office right now for president who does have the intestinal fortitude to push this through with millions of his closest friends is Senator Bernie Sanders. Well, so I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Nina. Um, I have just one last question for you, which is, why do you do this work? Why are you involved? Oh, my God. I mean, it's a mission. Oh, my God. I, I feel compelled. My mother died at a very young age. She died when she was 42 years old. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, my God. Me too. I'm about to tear up just thinking about it. I mm-hmm. miss her so very much. But, you know, she was, you know, really young, 42 years old. Aneurysm burst in her brain. And I'm the oldest of seven children. And, you know, my baby sister was 12 when my mom died. All of us are two years apart. And, you know, that was really a defining moment for me. And I'd always been pushed by, you know, my grandmother to to be the best and to be of service. And to have my mom die so young just really cemented something in me that I wanted to make her proud, even in death. And every day, you know, every move that I make from being an elected official, whatever level, whether it was a local level or state level of government, being a college professor, being a wife, a mom, you know, I've always tried to have in my, as my guiding principle, my guiding force, those words that my grandmother spoke to me, which was to be the best and to be of service. So this is a ministry for me, and it is informed by my lived experience. And, you know, my mother, who was underinsured, who was among the working poor, who had a job and didn't have a job, had a job, didn't have a job, had a job, 
didn't have a job and the stressors of being a custodial parent to seven children, you know, and, and then on top of being a black woman in America, that's a lot. And, you know, I believe that stress, just stress killed my mom, but it is because of her memory and because of all that my grandmother, her mother instilled in me that when to whom much is given, much is required. Everything that I do, I do it as if it is a ministry and I consider myself very much a hell-raising humanitarian. I don't <laughs> go along to get along, you know. I will stand up and I take the hard hits. And I have taken hard hits and I continue to take hard hits. But I'm doing what I believe is right, what is just, and what is good. And in that way, I'm just so inspired because, I, you know, I come from a working-class family. I know what it means to be really, 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 really poor you know, not to have food, you know, have my mother cry herself to sleep at night because she couldn't afford to uh, buy seven kids Christmas gifts, you know, feeling like a failure, a mom who at times wanted to commit suicide. So I get it. And I'm just so committed to pushing very hard to ensure that they are to decrease the number of people who feel like my mom. So it is the hell-raising hell humanitarian in me, Stephanie, that keeps me going every single day. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I teared up myself while you were saying it. And it amazes me, no matter how old we get, we're still trying to make our moms proud. So I can relate <laughs> to that. Yes. Amen. And I'm hoping that uh, I do I'm a faith woman, so I, I do believe she's in heaven saying, you go, girl. But yes, no matter how old we get <laughs> and no matter how old our moms are, or even if they're not in this plane of existence, we are always seeking to, to, to make them proud. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much. We're at time, but we really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you. I really do appreciate the opportunity and uh, keep doing the good work that you all are doing and helping people to open their minds and reimagine what the possibilities in this life can be. You too. Thank you so much for everything. So it was so nice to connect with um, Nina. And at the end, it definitely felt like we were having sort of a different kind of conversation. We were just connecting as two people who are trying to make their parents proud (laughs) and do something important and meaningful in the world. But it was also really great to do a little myth busting around this Medicare for All proposal. Right. So I continue to be relatively agnostic to the alternatives to the existing system. There are a bunch of different approaches, I think, that are available. Uh, Where I start is that we need to move away from the kludgy mess which is the American healthcare system. What I've, again, well, I'll say again, this the world's largest price-fixing scheme. Yeah. It's a terrible system that's inefficient, ineffective, and too expensive. And so Medicare for All is one very, very appealing alternative to that. You know, it's simple in the sense that you've just got to expand an existing program to include more and more people. And uh, I continue to believe that when we included all people, it, the system would both work better and get cheaper. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think it's a realistic alternative. I'm not positive it's the best, you know, like what it's exactly what we should do, but I, I'd be down for trying it yeah. uh, no matter what. See, I feel pretty strongly that Medicare for All is absolutely the answer. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sick of sort of tinkering around the edges yeah. and acting like people's attachment um, to the private health insurance and like yeah. system is is real. Yeah. I think people express that through liking their doctors. Yes. And actually politicians sort of misunderstand what that means and yes. think it's some attachment to having private health insurance yeah. or an employer provided um, system for most yeah. people. As if we all really love United Healthcare. Right. Or like, like not going on the network and having <laughs> yeah. to look up what provider yeah. will yeah. actually serve us at yeah. any given time or if we move trying to find right. new doctors for our kids. Yeah. Um, no one enjoys that process yeah. right. and the stress of having to change it if it ever happens because of yeah. a job change or a health uh, insurance change. And so I think politicians really misunderstand that. Yes. And to continue to um, to act like we can sort of baby step our way into things when yeah. a universal system, the best part about it is the scale that realizes all those efficiencies. Yes. That's yeah. where you actually are are making the financial shifts for people that make it totally worth it. Yes. Where people's taxes may go up, but now deductibles and co-pays are non-existent. Right. And so you don't realize that in the same way if I'm still holding on to my employer-provided coverage, but I'm also paying taxes yes. that provide right. for some right. people to now participate in yeah. a, a Medicare for those who want it program. Yeah. So that's my issue. I think yeah. politicians get it wrong. They read they read the room wrong, which is nothing new for politicians. Yeah. Um, but then I also think that we just don't realize that the yeah, the benefits. huge financial benefits yeah. unless we go to the scale that we yeah. are capable of going and that to may and be including everybody. True. And that may be very true. So, well, hopefully we'll do something. It feels like we're closer than ever. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, either you spark a lot of conversation or you're really confusing because <laughs> we've been getting a lot of calls from uh, listeners uh, asking questions. Yeah, awesome. And they're calling on our fabulous number, <laughs> which is 731-388-9334. Hello, Nick. My name is Tarek Patala, and I'm from New York City. My question is, how can we change the narrative of how immigrants contribute and enhance the economy of the United States, as opposed to draining the government coffers and taking away jobs from low and middle skill Americans? Thank you for taking my question, and I look forward to listening to our podcast on your platform devoted to this timely issue. So, Nick, I think this is a great question because in terms of uh, i'll admit the narrative has been pretty poor but yeah. uh when you're constructing a narrative about immigration both the empirical evidence and the sound economic theory is on the side of more immigration yeah absolutely i mean the first and foremost first and foremost you have to remember that the economy is people right and the more people they are who are fully integrated in the economy as workers, entrepreneurs, uh, well-paid consumers, the bigger and better the economy gets. And, um, you know, the, the vast majority of the GDP growth that America has enjoyed over the last decades has been a consequence of the fact that we have more people here. Right, right. People should <laughs> yeah. understand that, yeah. you know, we've talked about the problems in Japan right. for decades now with how they're, they, they, they're, they're kind of mired in slow growth. That's because their population is shrinking. Yeah. To be clear, in the United States, if not for immigrants and their children, 
our population would be shrinking. Exactly. We have our the the fertility rate does it does not meet the replacement rate. So a big chunk of our GDP growth has come from right. immigration. And if you just think about it in, the, in in primitive terms, if you're a business and you want to grow, you can only grow two ways. You can charge more to the people you already do business with, which is possible but difficult right or you can find new people to sell to so a growing market obviously more and more people equals uh you know a, an easy way to continue to grow businesses and generate uh generate more activity in the economy but it does go deeper than that right, right? because because there's a strong diversity argument for growth too right right so uh one of the things we do know is that uh immigrants uh, they bring a lot of cognitive and experiential diversity uh, to the economy, and we know that uh, immigrants uh, file more patents than the native-born. They start more businesses than the native-born. They uh, hire, create more jobs than the native-born. Right. Born. Overall, you, you know, it's hard to get here, either legally or illegally. It takes a lot of resourcefulness. These are some of the most resourceful yeah. people in the world, and they are a, a boon to the economy. That's right. Obviously, highly motiv motivated to right. be here. And they didn't come here to be on the dole. They came here to try to build a new life for themselves and their families. For, for what all of our ancestors right. came yeah, here by for. Yeah, by the way, my, I'm from a family of immigrants myself, so. Yeah, my my <laughs> maternal my maternal grandfather yeah. was an immigrant, so yeah. it's, uh, so my mother, child of an immigrant. Uh, so, and the other thing we know, and this is a, this is a common fear that immigrants are going to come in and take away our jobs. In fact, there have been uh, tons of studies on this. One of the most famous ones was on uh, was in Florida after uh, the the Cuban boat lift, when tens of thousands of Cubans suddenly flooded the Florida economy, and it turns out that no, in fact. Uh, they, we, Florida ended up creating more jobs than these right. people filled because the economy is what? People. It's people. Right. Uh, if you have a question for Nick on any economic issue, please give us a call and leave us a message at 731-388-9334. So on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about jobs and automation. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, And peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests, and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.